So our next presenter is Tharani Nadathur Sudarshan. He's a computer scientist, programmer, and hands-on technologist, engineer, startup founder, entrepreneur, and technology consultant. He is deeply interested in discovering the immense practicality of the Indian knowledge systems. His primary research interests lie in symbol systems for representation and intelligence, spanning man-made material systems, naturally occurring systems, and the Indic symbol systems. He comes from the Vishishta Advaita Sampradaya studies and practices are part of his upbringing and immensely influence every activity. He is also an active participant in the vibrant temple culture and events at many Vishnu temples in Tamil Nadu. And he's also recently been designated as an IFI research scholar. Sudarshan, please take this. So there are also a couple of papers I've done as part of this conference, one on Mimamsa, another one on philology. So this sort of also fits into the entire theme of Pollock's uh, primary intent of removing sacred from Sanskrit and Sanskriti. So I'll... So this I'm actually arguing in this paper. So I call it the science of the sacred. Okay. So what do I say? I say that the notion of sacred as defined by Western systems of knowledge, which is the religious systems, the Abrahamic systems, the Western secular systems, and the Western scientific systems are discussed and juxtaposed with our notion of sacredness. What's the Dharmic notion of sacredness? And also, our sense of sacred is distributed and natural. Whereas the Western sense of sacred is centralized. Somebody in the center, somebody has to say something, something is sacred. Then you respect it. And it's institutionally enforced. That's an artificial sense of sacred. They contrast that. And I say the flawed understanding of the sense of sacred and the obsession with Westernizing India is, I say, the root cause of Pollock's school obsession with desacralizing Sanskrit. Because they come from a Western approach of what is sacred. They probably do not even understand the Indian notion of sacred. This is the fundamental thesis. So I discuss, first thing is, the neo-orientalist discourse on sacredness, and the nature of sacred discourse in the West, and the gentle nature of Western civilization discourse, and the dharmic nature of sacred, and then both of these are compared. So what do the what is the Pollock school, or what we call the neo-orientalist school? What is exactly their discourse on desacralization? So, first of all, who are these people? So, latest among the post-colonial scholars deride India and its ethos. So, attempts at deriding culture and Indian ethos is very alive and very active among all channels of dissemination. So, this is, this is very, very active that Indian ethos has to be derided. This is going on. So, aims to weaken Indian nationhood this happens by weakening the fundamental unifying ethos, which is dharma. So if they, they can attack dharma, India is attacked easily. But the dharmic sense of, this is from uh, Rajiv's book, the dharmic sense of sacred is closely tied to the language of Sanskrit, the embedded cultural matrix. This is exactly what they want to attack with all of their thesis. So who is this specific scholar? So we see is attempted to undermine the Dharmic civilization via scholarly methods during career of more than 30 years. So these researchers postulate various theses, primarily by theorizing about the role of the language of Sanskrit. So all of his theories are based on the role of the language of Sanskrit. 
So I'll just quote a few from his 2006 book. So he says, it's an attempt to understand two great moments of transformation in culture and power. Sanskrit was a long or sacred language restricted to religious practice, was reinvented as a code for literary and political expression. And then he says, when local speech forms were newly dignified in literary languages and began to challenge Sanskrit for the work of both poetry and polity and in the end replaced it. He says the vernaculars replaced Sanskrit. So this is his sort of attack on the Sanskrit. So what is this? How does he actually build such theories? So his fundamental assumption behind the theorizations is that the split between the sacred and non-sacred is already part of the Indian tradition. He says many of his theses depend on the assumption, which he calls, which I call the natively present sacred versus non-sacred dichotomies. So how does he do that? Which is what we are examining in these sadhas and all those things. Is category misrepresentation. It's a primary slate. Right? He uses this as a basis to, on, from which to generalize and then he formulates divisive thesis based on this. It's fundamental faking. So he mixes up Paramarthika Vyaharika. Shruti, non-shruti, oral, written, all these are not distinct categories at all. They are only attributes of bodies of work. So each of these he says are different, different and then he splits the one on the left, the paramartika, shruti, oral, as something which is in later theories, he says it's something owned by the Brahmins and it's actually is the reason for all the ills of Indian society and should be removed. And what is needed is a Vyavaharika, non-Shruti and written traditions, which is something that the West will interpret for us via, for example, the Murti library. This is exactly the approach of the Murti library. They will interpret Vyavaharika, non-Shruti and written traditions in the Western lens or whoever is able to interpret it. This is also his primary misrepresentation to take Adhikara from the Indians to the West. Now, for example, you can an example of how he's applying Western constructs to India. Alright? So this is this is the thing on Vyavaharika. Granted, primacy is because the conviction that we cannot understand the past until we grasp how those who made it understood what they were making and why. This is never the intent of the Indian tradition. In general, there is a broad enough agreement on the differential specific of literature and non-literature to make modern Western distinction largely unobjectionable. So without any Proof, he says, we can blindly apply Western distinctions to describe South Asian literary cultures. How he has agreed, who has agreed, we don't know. Then he says, another, how he applies those constructs. The Catholic Church's eventual monopolization of Latin is an instructive parallel historically and structurally. So there's no way you can apply the, or the timeline of Latin, what happened in the, in the West, to Sanskrit. He does that blindly. He says it can be, it can be done. And then he says for the, most of the first millennium of Sanskrit existence, we have virtually no evidence for its employment in any domain as we would call along with Mimamsakas, this worldly. So there's another talk on Mimamsa I gave in the, in the morning. So he says the notion of this worldly is not there in Sanskrit, in the, in the Mimamsa part of Sanskrit. Well, fundamentally, it's, Mimamsa is all about your action. It's so this worldly. This is a fundamental Again, misrepresentation is making. So then this, this realm is outside the practices of the sacred and the forms of knowledge necessarily for the sacred. So he again tries to divide the sacred into, the, into this. So all sacred is on the left. So it's very important for him to stress on one on the right because all of that can make it non-sacred and secular. 
and all of that can so anybody can interpret ramayana the way they want the way it's being done for example so this is again from rajesh's book so desacralization literature as part of the desamskritization very important pollock's overall agenda right and what he calls the sanskrit cosmopolis is a crucial period in the desacralizing of sanskrit so it brings out the confines of the ritual and into the real world this is sort of the summary from rajesh's book so now before that so what we do is let's discuss what actually sacred means in the west's own academic scholarship and in what in their civilization okay this is sort of a popular view of what their sacredness is So this is the this is the level of spirituality that we see in popular culture. Next thing is the notion of sacred, universal at all. So Western anthropologists approaches to this question have yielded many theses, right? So is a sacred part of every civilization, every every human civilization? But all of it fundamentally presupposes a without-centric nature of sacred, in contrast to within-centric formulation of dharmic sacred. so sacred is always something outside for them it has to come from outside that's fundamental difference in all their theses there's there's they're nowhere close to having a within centric formulation of sacred so this person is a leading interpreter of religious experience who established paradigms in religious study that persists to this day this is a romanian he studied in west bengal and all that so his theory that hierophanies on the basis of religion splitting the human experience of the reality into sacred and profane has proved influential in all of western scholarship so is a hierophany is something that connotes manifestation of the divine inherent to the nature of anything sacred so what does mercia say man becomes aware of the sacred because it manifests itself shows itself as something different from the profane the modern occidental experiences experiences certain uneasiness before many manifestations of the sacred this is he's saying in 1950 so what situation today we it's it's it easy to guess the sacred is saturated with being sacred power means reality and at the same time enduringness and efficacy the polarity of sacred profane is often expressed as an opposition between real and unreal or pseudo real thus it is easy to understand that religious man deeply desires to be or to participate in reality to be saturated with power so the fundamental discourse of sacred is power centric again in this the fundamental understanding of sacredness is power so then he calls this the whole abyss so he says abyss that divides two modalities of experience the sacred and profane will be apparent when we come to describe sacred space in the ritual building of the human habitation or the variety of religious experience of time or the relations of religious man to nature and the world of tools or the consecration of human life itself so the sacredity is man's vital functions can be charged so are you seeing it sacredly or are you seeing it as a profane way so that will decide how you do your karma your vital functions so he says for what is modernity then for modern consciousness any physiological act is in some only an organic phenomenon however much of it may be still be encumbered by taboos imposing for example rules all, all of this right so they do not have any sense of sacred in any of those activities so modernity means basically anything which you desecularize non sacred behavior is modernity 
So sacred and profane are two modes of being in the world, two existential substitutions assumed by man in the course of his history. So they depend on different positions that man has conquered in the cosmos. Hence they are of concern both to the philosopher and to anyone seeking to discover possible dimensions of human existence. This is the Western understanding of sacred and influential. Then I'm going to use no Balagangadara's thesis. Okay, so he has studied Western culture against the background of Indian culture. This is his primary thesis, primary tome. So what he says for the last few hundred years, this is from a review of his new review of his book. Academic contexts have been dominated by questions that Europe has asked. The way of asking questions means that it has not asked questions in other ways. So whether adopted by Western intellectuals or non-Western intellectuals who parasitically formulate problems, according to it, that way is tied to Western culture. Only by understanding this can we discover how Indians can ask different questions and what contribution Indian culture make. Speaking Western language does not mean we understand what it is. So just because we do, let's say, Indology or in English doesn't mean we actually understand Indology in, in, any, in an Indian sense. So he shows that there's a discontinuity of epistemology between Western culture and the cultures of Greece, Rome and India. It is a kind of discontinuity that depends on very different configurations of learning. This is a very fundamental thing, something called as configuration of learning. So what is that? I'll sort of take the next few slides. So what is this? So the, religion, the notion of religion is very Western. So religion is an explanatory account of itself and the cosmos. As such, religion fuses a causal and intentional account. So the reason why universe came to be is because God intended to be. And that's also the intention why religion came. So all of these Judaism, Christianity, Islam share such a claim. Which is why they are the only instance of religion we have. These are the only three religions. Nothing else is religion. Hinduism is not a religion. None of this is a religion. So as the West, so now since they have this concept of religion, so as they explored, colonized, and expanded, religions were found everywhere. Because they wanted to find. This did not depend on empirical investigation. They found what they already expected to find. They want to find religion, so they found it. Because the dominant configuration of learning meant that no society was permitted to be without religion. Right? Without religion. Although different kinds of religion could be admitted. So the moment they come and saw Indians doing whatever, they thought it's some religion. Means they must have some sort of controlling authority, some sort of historical thesis. So that's how they even looked at Hinduism. So any, so they assumed that it's universal. Whereas fundamentally it's a Western notion, notion of religion. So now, should we do, so what should Sodeshindal actually do? So this is a, a quote from again Valgangadara. Orientalism cannot be corrected by adducing factual evidence because the basis of its structuring enterprise lies elsewhere. Doing better studies of Hinduism will not disrupt it, but only decorate it. So we have to first understand we are not studying a religion. So then I say, so what's the key insight? He says, a provincial experience, the province being Europe, of a small segment of humanity does not become universal by decree. Nor does a specific group, in our case, all our, all our, all our Macaulay Putras, we do not become universal audience, but merely pretending to be one. So we have to understand our own dharma in our own way, not using the western lenses. So now, so what's this fundamental difference? One is that notion of religion. So where did that come from? So he introduced a notion called as a root model of order. 
So he says in the West, the root model of order is religion. This root model controls how you learn as a civilization. So which configures learning by structuring experience of the world. Typically, the specific way of learning is a knowing of knowing about something. Right? So it produces a culture-specific knowledge, a species of knowledge, which is theoretical knowledge. So once you know about something, that is called sciences. You, you, you build theories and then you understand a phenomenon using theories. Now, this way of learning, seeking knowledge about something, has generated theoretical knowledge, the natural sciences. What is natural science? It's a species of knowledge that grew out of a religious culture. So what he says, if you are willing to entertain the suggestions, we can take a further step in characterizing religion as or worldview as a root model of order for the West, which produces a specific kind of knowledge, which is theoretical knowledge. So the West's culture creates a learning culture which produces this kind of knowledge, which you can see in the sciences, all of physics theory, all of it, based on some theories, which they keep updating. So there's nothing practical or final about any of the knowledge the West has produced till today. That's because the root model order, according to his thesis, is this. So now science actually depends on religion. So if religion was a necessary condition, religion was a necessary condition for the development of scientific thinking, and as I suggest, new religion generates a culturally specific way of living. What one, one calls the scientific attitude today is actually the religious attitude of the West. Religion formed it, nurtured it, and gave birth to science as a result. In its absence, as I have suggested, there would be no, no science. Religion then provides us with the basic model, the most fundamental one of what it is for something to be an explanation. So you have to give a theoretical explanation first. Only then, which is what Abrahamic religion is. They give a theoretical explanation for everything. So what he says, we survive as a species by developing ways of learning that not only give birth to our culture, but also sustain them. So is it possible to have different root models of order? Right? So there, the Western thing was learning about something. So here, the Indian sense, the configuration of learning as cultural answers, the fundamental last question, question we ask is how to live. Okay, we don't want to know what's something, we want to know how should I live my life. Or rather, how to go about in the world. So it's both a question and the answer becomes performative in nature. So we are not a theoretical culture or theoretical civilization, we are a performative civilization. That's why I stress on karma and all, and all rituals. So ritual, like religion, so we are a ritual culture, not a religious culture. So ritual brings about a culturally specific way of going about in the world. So in a configuration of learning generated by it, Performative learning dominates and learning to do rituals is performative. So what happens, the way in which members of this culture go about in the world is itself ritualized. Finally, the configuration of learning generated by this ritual is stable because ritual culture is a recursive structure. Each person will have his interpretation of the practice. There is not some primordial truth in some theory. So it's a practical ritual nature, the root culture of Indian civilization. So the West is religious, theoretical, textual. So India is ritual, practical. Yeah, ritual, practical and performative. So then we come to what's actually, so given that, given these two backgrounds of Marcia Eliade and Balagandhara, what does it mean for sacred in a dharmic sense? So, it's axiomatically sacred. So, it is built on the fundamental basis of Veda, oral signified chants, that encapsulate the basis of cosmological existence. So, out of this 1113 branch, only 1% are still remaining. 
the Shastra Shrauta, the found base of Shruti, not of divine origin. The Smriti genre of literature, the Darshanas, Metatexts, also describe the sacred in different dimensions. It's all about nature of sacred only. Fundamentally, everything is axiomatically sacred. So all of the practice genres, Srotara, Mantras, or literature, experiential entry points into the sacred dimension. The all-encompassing sacredity of the Dharmic nature knowledge and its vast literatures is unquestionable to anyone living here. So deeply practical culture of learning and embodied living is of all that is unique to Dharmic living has at its core the nature of sacred. To say that there is nothing sacred is neither groundbreaking nor innovative scholarship. This is a fundamentally sacred. This is another. This is an example I made in the other talk. So it's like somebody critiquing quantum physics, but he does not believe one plus one equal to two. So he does not believe in the axioms of math or science, but then he is going, going to go and critique quantum physics, for example. So the fundamental notion here is everything is sacred, and then you can interpret only on that dimension. So now, but then his critiques have got value because they are from a, of a sociological nature. So what he says, a critical discussive dimension of desacralization narrative is to focus on the socialism of society. How does, how, why is there validation of Pollock? Because he focuses on the socialists. But then he attributes them to the core tenets of Dharmic society. So poverty, illness, colonization, social satisfaction, all of these are attributed to the nature of Dharma. He says, because Dharma and its sense of sacred makes society weak. Because, because of that only, you have been all of the ABC, all the things you list. So he says, the stronger way for society is violence and conquest which is the western way. So that's the fundamental motive. So how does he do it? So the philological methods of Pollock aim at excavating via political philology, sociological ills through creative analysis of texts, and then a prescriptive application via liberation philology is to western approach is presented as solution to all of these ills. This in short is the essence of the, the Pollockian discourse. So it is driven by religion, Centrally controlled, theoretical, it's learning driven by theory, the sense of sacred is not important. So, desacralization of Indian knowledge systems and practices becomes essential. If you do not desacralize, you cannot control India. You cannot westernize India. So, it's very fundamental to all of Western thesis. So, that is the primary motive of Western scholarship. So, So what do we do now that we know this is their motive? So, so I say the theoretical discourse and the resulting practical process of desacralization will continue. It will happen. It's part of the nature of Western root model of order. It's part of the Western civilization. So scholarship which acknowledges realities and provides coherent narratives based on dharmic root models of order, practice-centric configurations of learning and the dharmic ethos are essential. So there can be no compromise on that. That's the... Any questions? How, how, how do we fit in? Actually, the whole digitization is a huge advantage to us because it's a practical framework, right? So it is like, it's an amplifier for what you want to do. So that's the way you have to look at it. 
So digitization, it, it, it's just a, a channel of faster communication, faster knowledge dissemination, faster response and reaction. So any doubts and clarifications we have can be, can be clarified much more faster. We, we needn't have these problems fetching for 200 years without us answering it. So we should use it for our advantage, not only for responding, but for knowing our own critics better. We can understand ourselves critically much more better with digital technology than without. So I think instead of, before we go to globalization, I think digital technology helped us understand ourselves inside India far better. So people in South India can understand North India much more today with WhatsApp and Facebook and Twitter. That is much more important to me in my perspective than people understanding the West. Yes, yes, it is being used in all forms. So the thing is, how much of the form or rather, see today, from my experience, let's say, I'm getting the background of the questions, what do we do, what do, how do we bring this message across to the youth? So they are, so for them it's like I said, a practical, they, they will want to experience everything. Right, so if you are able to provide a, in their channel of experience, what it is that you represent or what it is that your dharma represents, then we have a chance. If your sense of uh, nature, civilization, culture is not on those channels, they will not even get exposed to it. They will not even get exposed because those channels are dominated by the other discourse. Yeah, it is definitely a challenge, but it's, ignoring it is to our in our peril. If, if we ignore it, no, it's not the I think question of ignoring it. Uh, somebody like me, I am computer ignorant because uh, there is so much else that's happening. And not all Vidwans are scholars like you and uh, Swamiji who's you know, shown before, Satyanarayan Dasa, uh, are uh, conversant with the modern technology. So how, how do, because India is very vast and everything is so big, how do we really make it uh, a real way, a real movement? So first thing, so answering question, so one is the channel and one is the educational or rather the curricula. The curricula itself should be structured such that it is digitally created, produced and the pedagogy is digital and the content should be dharmic. The content should, is Yes, the content is, it's not a channel. Digital is just a channel. The content is still, we have to put effort on the content. That is the key thing. Modifying content for the channel is, is, is fine. That can be done. But the main thing is, have, do we even have original proper content of our stuff in schools today? If we have all crazy textbooks in print, we get the same crazy textbooks on the digital format also. So the content creation is the primary activity. I, I agree with you. I agree. With you. I think in your wonderful talk, but I think you missed a very central dichotomy between the Abrahamic and the Dharmic, that the Abrahamic, by the very nature of God being external and intermediate, and the only way we have access is through prophets, and he stopped sending them for whatever reason. So now we have to go to books which those prophets wrote, and their history, and hence their history centrism. That versus our approach that everything is sacred and there is divine presence everywhere. So I don't have to depend on some external prophet who came long ago, but I have access through various means. So even if all the historical records were gone, dead, finished, 
the point is some rishi will come some yogi will come who will get this because of the sacredness of everything it is possible therefore the what the prophet got is not gone and all forever we can have any number i think this is so central uh, differentiation if you focus on this you will see a whole new insight as to why they are doing what they are doing in terms of threat, finding our sacredness threatening it is threatening and the the christian obliteration of pagan was because the pagans had this kind of idea similar not the same but they similar not they were not exactly the same the pagans had were obliterated in order for christian for this abrahamic religions to survive even islam went around doing that so their survival success and what not has been built on the obliteration of this sacredness this ubiquitous sacredness the grand clash is between that view they have and the sacredness everywhere that's the grand clash of civilizations in which so far they feel they won so now comes the chapter of encounter with hinduism immediately it reminds them of all that big threat uh, you cannot you know uh, you cannot uh, let it come into our american and our western life too much up to a point is okay we can uh, Uh, enjoy the tabla and we can enjoy some tandoori food that some kind some of good yoga, good yoga, yoga. <laughs> but this business of getting really into all this will undermine the whole edifice of the uh, structure so this is a very important point you should make in the anything i know that those guys have written all that but i think this is a very fundamental point that they have they missed these guys agree agree now the question is okay so if this is a big difference between the a, a, a profit profit oriented religions which you can also say is p r o f i t profitable <laughs> <Yeah. Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> profit centric is profitable religion and this dharmic sacred religion metaphysically so different okay. have resulted in a power structure in the world of one defeating the other so far in political terms okay so this is a basic thing you have to understand now all their scholars and all that when they come here that's the first thing they have to remove they can oh. say we love your sanskrit but we'll remove the sacred oh. we love the ramayana as a pure poetry oh. a kavya uh, all kind of things we will take the natyashastra uh, you know all all kind of uh, our performing arts and remove this sacred dimension then it is safe otherwise our young people are going to absorb it digest it and uh, it will act like a poison pill and kill the abrahamic uh, uh, things so i think that has to come out as to why what is the what why sacred is so big a problem other than doing lip service to it and i th- i didn't see that come out that that sort of a uh, theory of it okay. and then from there you can look at science and all that data also you know how science fits in here how it fits in there. but i think the basic uh, pillar of differentiation so it's, is, a, it's a it's a threat for them yeah but you have to first uh, elaborate and explain what is the sacred versus their view of the world religion versus sacred religion versus dharma with this kind of a history centrism is a very important point to uh, you know foundation i think you need to think about do you have a comment on that i mean what do you think i mean i did mention a little bit so in the imam sat up on the whole notion of history and all that so i sort of want to take a different approach using the yeah, yeah. english text itself so yeah. agree agree with you i mean i'm with you that yeah. so, and and this i argued that point from a mimamsa perspective but not from okay the from gen more general sacred perspective uh, i have a question uh, let's 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 hello yeah uh, oh. 
Um, just continuing on Rajiv ji's uh, uh, push of how your thought train should have been, just wanted to ask you if you had explored out in deep the big underlying undercurrent in the Western thinking of this notion of desacralization as the separation of church from state. And the fact that the separation of church from state itself is like power centricness being split. And more importantly, how did this church try to regain that power back? Because they have done it in a very subtle way. And if so, what does it mean for us? Because to us, what Rajivji says and what every one of us understands is sacredness is like breathing air. You don't separate, right? And if they are attacking that, can we decipher that out so we can counter it a lot more effectively? That's my question to you. Yeah, okay. So on this separation of church and state, again, from a deeper perspective, theoretically, they say actually it's again just a superficial separation. There's actually no separation actually happens. The state is today still the church. That's one perspective that they take. Okay, that's actually, that's one perspective. The, the American constitution, or rather the country, is still a Christian country. There's actually no separation. <laughs> exactly. I agree. Agree. So the How did they manage to do that? How I mean, did they manage to do that? Have we deciphered that out? And if so, can those parameters, yardsticks be defrocked in our context, such that this dharma, as an intrinsic part of our thinking, which is very different from the way they think, can be brought out, and therefore the what do you call invalidity of their propositions in explaining us? Okay, so the answer to your question is because our dharma is practical, we'll have to do it and show. We can talk, we can do all of this. If we continue to wear Western clothes, for example. Now, I'm just giving an example, for example. So let's say a university graduation, for example. So all the wearing of gowns and all that. So once you remove all the external symbols, it will happen. So unless we take practical steps, it will not. Theoretically, we can attack anything they want. Nothing is going to happen. Practically, we still wear Western clothes. No, I think that is a no, 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 no. I think I, that's very I'm critical. I'm talking about the thought processes. Correct, correct. The decision-making correct, ability. Correct, correct, correct. The foundations for what is called as power structures. Correct. Can we bring that out, you know, much more appropriately? Okay, from a, from a, of the West. Obviously, they are attacking us. From correct. From okay, fine. That, that can be done. Yeah. I mean, in terms of solution, we cannot solve it theoretically. All I'm saying. If you really want to counter that, this. Yeah, I mean, if you want to solve it, it has to be practically. If you can't do it, yeah. My Darpan Majumdar, beautiful presentation, I think. Uh, one point to you and Rajivji also. Uh, so when we think about Sanskrit uh, as a language, uh, is, I mean, the notion of it being religious neutral is something which constantly now, I think, comes across. Uh, you know, so when we talk about Sanskrit in your study, do you think, uh, and also Rajivji, if you want to mention that, especially now, a lot of people who are actually learning, there's a lady called Rohini Bakshi, which Jim Allison told me about, which she's doing a decent work on, on, on Sanskrit on Twitter. So should we, as, as a Hindu, when I talk about Sanskrit, should I keep it religion neutral or it has to it sort it of- It can be religion neutral, but should be dharmic. Uh, how how do how do as as me as an individual uh, I don't know I'm not able to explain it in proper yeah, words but you get it. Uh, I mean my answer is it, it can be religiously neutral but should be dharmic. So so Rohini Bakshi is a protege of Pollock. 
have turned loose a lot of uh, little, little uh, not so little. Devdat Patnaik, another one. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So this whole idea of uh, can we let's promote the Sanskrit, which is not linked with the sacred, is a part of this whole strategy to undermine. So I'll come to your house and I'll say I really appreciate many many things, but uh, we got to get rid of the, your heart, you know. Some that it's a, it's that sort of a, and our people are going for it. Our people are unfortunately falling for it because it's very nicely presented, lot of money thrown at it, and things of that sort. One quick point. Uh, regarding separation of church and state. You know, this has enabled Italy to have two votes in the UN because Vatican has a vote. Yeah, yeah this is a practical use so, of So, that. the Roman Empire never died. It got reincarnated oh, yeah. as the Vatican, Vatican, but the original state also survived. <laughs> it's really true. The Roman Empire now is a church, is the Roman Empire. Yeah, it is a proper state. I believe that unless the word secular is removed from our constitution, which was brought in, which was brought in uh, in 1972 uh, by Indira Gandhi, see when you are talking of dharma, then I think secular dharma nirapeksha, yes. it, it makes no sense. It makes no sense because there they are they have already interpreted dharma as religion, what you described, the Brahmic and all that. Whereas our dharma is not that. Dharma rakshati rakshitaha, etc., etc. So I think there is a lot, of, a lot to do, a lot to be done. But in the present atmosphere, it's so difficult. I mean, all these are wonderful. I mean, I, I congratulate Rajiv and IGNC and everyone who's participating. But how do we bring such discourses in mainstream? How do we do that? I think that is a larger question that we tried to, yes. you, that you took it to Madras, uh, IIT. JNU doesn't want it. You know, the hubs where people need to hear, they need to think, they need to have arguments, discussions. Unless that happens more and more in larger perspective, I think we will all, we will try, maybe another 30 years. But if we want it to happen in three years and five years, then we'll have to really make an all-out effort. I mean, it, it, it will be a fight to finish, I'm sorry to say. Yeah, any other question, please? Yes, please. Uh, in fact, this is not a question. In fact, it's a comment that we, we will have to stop looking at or follow the Durkheimian uh, concept of profane versus sacred. We do not follow that, in fact. We must understand that. Uh, we can take a cue from Dome. The same Dome who is actually falling into the Antej category. Uh, when we die, he becomes Dome Raja, the one who liberates. Until unless Dome gives us Agni, we are not liberated. We, do not, we cannot have moksha at all. So this idea of sacred and profane falling, you know, there is too much of interspersing into each other. So we must get rid of this whole Durkheimian paradigm of sacred versus profane. In fact, it's something different for us. 
yes. so indian indian paradigm has to be looked into differently i believe yeah thank That's you why i said i said that whole sacred profane is a western view of seeing sacred that was sort of the that was a segment of the talk i would just yes. may i may i may i just come in for a second um i'm sure many of you are aware of the uh, buddhist tantric traditions the vajrayana and the 16 siddhas and all that i've done little bit work on that and uh, danced but there because it was a question asked by a very simple lady in trichur some years ago 40 years ago 30 years ago that why is it uh, all the compositions that are sung and danced to the classical tradition although they are written 90% by men saints or poets or whoever by the kshetragya or tyagaraja or they are all addressing the women the goddesses or the as consort of shiva parvati would be mother of parvati consort of shiva wife of shiva oh devi radha would be the beloved of krishna never addressing them directly as my beloved we dare not do it her question was is is there any example and i was flummoxed i said give me time and here my friend my 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 guide jeevan pani ji he brought out the charya geetis the charyas and most of them written by kanpa who is from odisha krishnapada milarepa tilopa naropa the 16 siddhas they address directly to the woman the goddess or the prana shakti and and they they use they are usually the dome woman or the sabari the tribal woman and this is one example that we found and that falls within the indic ambit so somewhere i think we can as you asked that we have that but it's not known and we we need to bring all these things mainstream thank you to help me you can do two things you can go to the subscribe button on my youtube and subscribe we need more subscribers there uh, secondly i get lots of emails on people saying how do we donate how can we help you uh, you go to rajimalhotra.com or you go to infinityfoundation.com and you can hit the donate button you can donate in dollars there are different ways mentioned if you want to donate in rupees there is a column called uh, infinity foundation india and you click that and there are instructions on how you can donate in india